You're listening to the Informal Bible Study, a casual and applicational look at the Scriptures. I'm John Stonge, and it's great to have you with us today. Today we're going to take a break from our look at 2 Corinthians. We'll resume it next week. But today I want to take you to a message that I shared with my church about a year ago, a little bit less than a year ago. And it's a message from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 2. And in that portion of Scripture, we can see from the examples that were given there and the testimony that's given in that passage of Scripture, the good hand of God at work in our lives. We can see an illustration of that in that passage. And I think sometimes we wonder what God is doing in our lives or what he's up to. And we're curious about how it's all working out. Well, that portion of Scripture illustrates how God's hand is at work in our lives and how his hand is at work throughout the course of human history. So I hope it's an encouragement to you. It's a little bit different from what we normally do on our weekly podcast, but I hope that you'll enjoy changing it up a little bit this week. Before we get into that portion of Scripture, though, I just want to make mention of just a couple quick things. First off, we want to just thank those of you that have been encouraging us and supporting this podcast in a variety of ways. There's a couple quick ways that you could do that. One is by leaving a rating or a review on iTunes. Another is by becoming a supporter of this ministry by making a small gift to help cover our hosting and production costs. And you could do that at our website, pastor.us. And a third way is if you go to our website, pastor.us, you can see a variety of resources there that are available for purchase. And uh, if you'd be interested in purchasing any of those resources, we have quite a few books related to spiritual health and spiritual growth. We have a few books as well that are centered on marriage helps, and a lot of the feedback that we've received related to those is that they've been rather helpful. In fact, the material found in those books I often use when I'm providing marriage marriage counseling uh, in our church. So I hope that some of those things will be helpful to you. I just want to point out to you that those are available on our website. Again, that's pastor.us. If you've never stopped by to check it out, uh, just take a moment to do so. Maybe there'll be something there that's helpful or encouraging to you. So that's it as far as uh, getting us started today. Now let's take a listen to a message that I preached last year at Core Creek Community Church right at the start of the spring from Nehemiah chapter 2. The portion of scripture we're looking at today, it comes from the second chapter of Nehemiah. And we're going to notice something in this chapter. It's a very interesting chapter that I don't imagine is going to stand out as being quite as interesting as it is when we first read it. But there's some connections that I want to make to other portions of scripture that I hope will illustrate some of what I'm talking about. But in uh, Nehemiah 2, where we're at today, one of the things that you'll see that Nehemiah is thankful for is the good hand of God at work in his life and in his circumstances. And over the course of your life, usually from retrospect, have you noticed the hand of God at work in your life? I mean, sometimes we don't catch on to what he's doing in the moment, right? Sometimes in the moment, you find yourself scratching your head. But do you ever have those moments where when you reflect on the journey that the Lord has been bringing you through, and you start connecting some of the dots now that you've seen the results and the outcomes of some of those events or some of those circumstances, you could trace the hand of God at work in your life. And you see, oh, that's why I was in that circumstance, or that's why you had me go through that trial, because now I have a child going through this that I'm able to help, or, or that's why I met this person, because that connected me to this person. And so we make those connections. And the truth is, God's hand is at work in our lives. 
And it's nice when we can recognize that. And sometimes in the moment we recognize that, most often it takes us a little time. Nehemiah was able in the portion of scripture that we're looking at today to recognize in the moment God's good hand at work in his context. And there's a few implications that come from this that we're going to look at this this morning, but if you would take your Bibles and open up to Nehemiah chapter 2. We started looking at the book of Nehemiah last week, so you know, new series here and a new book for us, Nehemiah, and we're in chapter 2 today. And we're just going to look at the first eight verses of Nehemiah chapter 2 as we see God's good hand at work. And this is what it says, starting with verse 1 of Nehemiah 2. We read, In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing as you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for uh, the, the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that each week we have the privilege of starting off our week by gathering together in this place, setting aside all the things that typically weigh our minds and our hearts down, and just focusing on the content of your word so that we can be prepared for what is in store in our lives and so that our hearts would be primed to worship you and seek you first throughout the course of this week. Lord, we're thankful that We have the privilege to sing songs of praise to you together and fellowship together and pray together and give and serve together and and again, to study your word together. And so, Lord, we pray that since the only way that we'll ever be able to make sense of your word in its deepest sense is by the power of your Holy Spirit opening up our minds and opening up our, our eyes and our hearts to be able to understand this content, we pray that you would do that for us now that you would speak to us through your word, and we just thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being able to meditate on its content together this morning. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So as you probably remember, we spent a few months looking at the book of Ezra, and the book of Ezra traces a group of people from Judah who had been taken into captivity in Babylon, being allowed to come back to Judah and rebuild the temple. 
because the temple had been destroyed and the city of Jerusalem had been destroyed. And so the first group of people, they go back and they rebuild the temple. And the book of Ezra gives us the story of God's hand at work in the people to rebuild the temple and for worship to be able to take place in Jerusalem like God had ordained for it to, to take place. But there was still an issue related to Jerusalem, and that was that the walls of Jerusalem were down. And the book of Nehemiah, which we started looking at last week, originally Ezra and Nehemiah were one book. In our English Bible, they're separated into two distinct books, but originally they were one book, and they continue with a very specific theme that relates. So whereas in Ezra we see the building of the temple, in Nehemiah we see the rebuilding of the wall around the city. And we're told that Nehemiah was somebody that was in a very important position. He was cupbearer to the king. And the king specifically was King Artaxerxes of Persia. Persia had taken over Babylon. And we're told in chapter 1, when we were looking at that, uh, that Nehemiah receives word that the walls around the city of Jerusalem were not built. They were in, in, in ruins, and the gates were in ruins. They were rubble. And uh, this was indicative of the heart condition of the people in many respects. And, and this troubled him greatly. And so the book of Nehemiah gives us this picture of Nehemiah desiring to go back to Jerusalem, the place of his ancestry, and be used of God to rebuild those walls. And his goal wasn't just that there be an architectural project that gets successfully uh, taken care of. What he's really trying to do is see that the, the spiritual and social lives of the people of Judah are restored to the level that God wants them to be restored to. And when you look at Nehemiah, all throughout the book, there are several things that you could easily and quickly start to say about him the more you look into his life. It becomes obvious that Nehemiah is a man of faith. It becomes obvious that Nehemiah is a man of prayer. It also becomes obvious that Nehemiah is a man of action. So all of those things seem to be at play in Nehemiah's Life And one of the things that I think also becomes clear, particularly when we look at the scriptures through the lens of asking the question, what does this have to do with Jesus Christ, or how does this point me to Jesus Christ? And one of the things that we begin to see about Nehemiah is that he exhibits the heart of Christ toward the will of God and toward loving the people and leading them in a direction that's meant to be uh, God-honoring. And uh, in this particular portion of scripture, we're given a glimpse of Nehemiah being able to testify to God's good hand at work in his life. And so I want to point out a couple things related to that that I think directly relate to what it looks like for us to mature in our walk with Christ and, and live a life of faith and some things that we can apply to that. But as we get to the last section that we're going to look at today, I want to point out something that I'm guessing is typically missed when people do like kind of a first reading of Nehemiah chapter 2. So I don't want us to miss it today. I'm going to make a connection to something that maybe you're familiar with or maybe you've never even heard of. So I'm looking forward to sharing that. But before we get into that, let's look at a couple things related to, to Nehemiah here. And one of the things that we see is Nehemiah is a man of faith, but he also exhibits some fear in this passage as it opens up. And I want to express the fact that I think that fear might be evidence of faith in use in some contexts. I think a lot of times when we hear the concept of fear, think about fear in our life, it's not something that we look forward to or something that we welcome. But in this particular context, it starts to become evident that his fear is evidence of faith in, in use. Look at what it says again in verse 1. I'll reread just a little bit of this here. It says, In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. 
He says, now I had not been sad in his presence, meaning I'd never, you know, I haven't been sad in his presence. He hasn't seen me like this. And now he is sad in his presence. And it says, and the king says to me, why is your face sad, seeing as you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. And then Nehemiah says, then I was very much afraid. That's what he says to himself. I was very much afraid. Not just a kind of little bit on the fringes afraid. He's saying, I was, to my core, afraid in this moment. This was unlike anything I had experienced before. Um, Many of you know that that one of my favorite things to do is to read up on certain people from history or certain events from history. And I will say that there are a series of people in history that I tend to look up to. And from time to time, I've even considered printing out nice portraits of some of these people so that I can frame those portraits and hang them around my office just for some inspiration. Because there's a, a series of people that I find myself looking up to, and I think about the ways that they led and the ways that they conducted their own lives or the ways that they, they managed their households and things like that, and I appreciate their leadership example. And I've noticed a pattern in many of these people that I look up to. They tended to be people of great faith that then coupled that faith with unconventional action. They didn't just let it stay in the back of their mind. They figured out a way to follow through on what the Lord had impressed upon their heart. And I was thinking about that this week when I was looking at this passage, preparing to preach for today, because Nehemiah follows that kind of pattern. And when this chapter opens up here, we're shown a picture of Nehemiah just simply fulfilling his role as cupbearer. He was faithful in fulfilling his role as cupbearer. We know that that was a very trusted position, uh, because Nehemiah was in a spot where he was in close proximity to the king, very frequently. And it was his job to taste the food and to drink the drinks that would then be served to the king so that they could confirm that there was nothing poison in it, that there was nothing that would be harmful to the king. And so Nehemiah was in a very important role, and he was doing his role, fulfilling it faithfully like always. But the king notices something very different about Nehemiah, this passage tells us, particularly about Nehemiah's facial expression. Because he sees something in Nehemiah that he's never noticed before. Again, keep in mind, Nehemiah spends a lot of time right there in the presence of King Artaxerxes and the queen, and they would notice patterns. You know, there's, there are times where, I mean, people that know you, they pick up on stuff, don't they? You know, a few years ago, I, w- I had something that was bothering me, and I remember attending something where a group of my friends were there, other pastors, and one of the guys picked up on it, and I hadn't said a word. And he picked up on it just from my facial expression or just the depth through which he was used to me laughing at things. And he could kind of tell that I was like half-heartedly laughing. And he said, something's bothering you. What's bothering you? And when you look at Nehemiah interacting with Artaxerxes here, Artaxerxes looks at Nehemiah and he could see, something's bothering you. You're not sick. It's not that. The sadness that you're experiencing is like a heartbroken condition. You've got some sadness of the heart, my brother. What's going on? What's the, what's the issue? The king starts asking Nehemiah a little bit about this. So now think about this moment that Nehemiah is in. In this moment, he has the most powerful man on the earth at the time asking him to share something from his heart. You know, tell me what's on your mind. Tell me what's on your heart. Lay it before me. Express it to me. He wanted to know what was troubling his trusted cupbearer, Nehemiah. And we're told in this passage that at this moment, as the king inquires about, you know, just what's going on in Nehemiah's mind and what's going on in his heart, 
that Nehemiah's first response was great fear. He's extremely fearful as the king starts asking him about this. But he answers the king anyway, and he does so very respectfully, and basically explains to the king that the city of his forefathers, the, cities where, the city where his ancestors are buried, Jerusalem, lies in ruins, and its gates are destroyed by fire, and his heart is grieved over this thought. And I think that this is a very interesting way for this chapter of God's Word to open up, because it's clear that Nehemiah had a heart for what mattered to the Lord. The things that mattered to the Lord were things that Nehemiah, by God's grace, also considered priorities for him. It's also clear that Nehemiah was a man of faith, that Nehemiah was a man of prayer, that Nehemiah was a man of action, and we'll see that as that plays out throughout the course of this book. But we're also given a very human and very down-to-earth kind of glimpse of Nehemiah in this passage. In his own words, and this isn't words, these aren't words that are cast on him, these are his own words, he says he was very much afraid. Very much afraid. How would we say that? Terrified, right? Or, or, or like frightened to the core. One of my favorite things to do in my household is to scare my family, jump out of corners, things like that. We do that to each other all the time. My kids have taken on that task. But even though we frightened each other little bits, I don't think there's ever been a moment where we've been frightened to the core. Now, I take it back. There's been a couple moments, but we won't tell those stories, right? Um, But Nehemiah here says he's very much afraid, very much afraid. So what do you think about that? Particularly in light of the fact that Nehemiah is a man of great faith. So can a person be both faithful and fearful? Doesn't that seem like a bit of a conundrum? Can a person be both faithful and fearful at the same time? Doesn't that seem like those are two opposite ends of the spectrum? That you wouldn't expect somebody that's that's full of great faith to also be somebody that's experiencing great fear? And it's clear when you look throughout Scripture, what does the Lord say is the requirement that is necessary for him to be pleased? Faith. Our Lord is pleased by faith. Over and over and over again, he tells us in Scripture, I'll just show you a couple In Hebrews 11, the hall of fame of faith that we call this chapter, what does it say? It says, faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It's evidence of things we cannot see. Through their faith, the people in days of old earned a good reputation. By faith, we understand that the entire universe was formed at God's command. That what we now see did not come from anything that can be seen. And so you have the book of Hebrews in chapter 11 telling us time and time again, through many personal examples, that God wants us to trust Him by faith. And then you look at the book of Galatians chapter 2 verse 20, and what does it tell us about how we're to day-to-day live? It says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So the life you're called to live, the life I'm called to live, is life by faith. We're called to live by faith in the Son of God. And then we look at this portion of Scripture, and Nehemiah is expressing fear in the midst of everything he's dealing with. So what place can fear play in the life of a believer? Does it somehow make you less of a believer if you experience some level of fear during the course of your life? You know, was Nehemiah maybe spiritually immature at this season of his life because he was somehow wrestling with fear in the moment? 
I have another theory related to it, and you already know my hypothesis because I made it the main point of this section here that we're looking at. But the truth is, I think that in many cases, the presence of fear can actually be evidence of our faith being tested or being put to use. That our faith isn't dormant, but it's actually being put to use. And what I mean by that is this. Nehemiah here, or we sometimes in these moments of fear, are stepping into unfamiliar territory. We're fighting our natural instincts. Our natural instincts are uh, to put ourselves in a spot that just produces safety and familiarity. But here in this particular context, what's Nehemiah doing? He's putting himself in the exact spot that's going to stretch him the most. And he's being stretched beyond what he's accustomed to being stretched. And I think that if we're listening to God's voice, and if we're taking steps of faith as God nudges us to take those steps, the presence of fear in those moments might actually be a form of confirmation that we're not shrinking back from the mission that God has given us. That we're not trying to shrink back to safe and familiar places, but rather we're saying, all right, Lord, I'm going to trust you enough to take another step forward, and another step forward, and another step forward, and I'm going to fight through this fear. It's not like I'm trying to say that fear is a good thing. But what I am saying is this. In this kind of context, I think that our fear could actually serve as a little bit of an evidence that we're fighting against the natural impulse to try and retreat back to things that are already familiar. It's like this process that we go through of being stretched and being pushed outside of familiar surroundings into the new area of faith that the Lord wants us to step into. And that's exactly what's taking place in Nehemiah's life. He experiences momentary fear, not because he doesn't trust the Lord, but because he is trusting the Lord and he's stepping out into things he's never seen before. As he's making this step of faith, and he's hit with a twinge of fear. But he doesn't just stay in the fear. Because you could do a couple things when you have those moments of fear. I imagine many people, when they hit the fear point, retreat back to safety. That would be our natural impulse. The other option is to press forward with the unction that God gives us. I don't know if you ever heard of a guy named David Schwartz. He was a professor back in the 50s at Georgia State University. And he had an interesting observation about this. He said this, to fight fear, Act. To increase fear, wait, put off, and postpone. So if we're going to fight fear, we need to act. We want to increase fear, we can wait, we can put off, we could postpone. Just think about the things that you and I are procrastinating on. I've got a list of a few things I'm procrastinating on. And what does it do? The longer we let those things linger there, what do they produce? Fear, anxiety, worry, whatever it may be. To fight fear, act. To increase fear, wait, prolong, postpone. And what does Nehemiah do? Does he wait? Does he prolong? Does he postpone? No. He acts. So I contend that in this context, in this particular situation, and in many situations that we may experience that are very similar, that twinge of fear that we might experience for a moment, even if it runs deep, it might be evidence that we're in the midst of a good opportunity to put our faith to use. And I think that's exactly what's taking place here in Nehemiah's life. And something else that gets displayed just about the life of faith here as Nehemiah continues this through and as this is displayed to us in this passage is related to prayer. And prayer is certainly an outpouring of faith. Now my slide I think got a little messed up here. Oh no, they fixed it. Thank you sound team for fixing my slide. 
at 9 o'clock. See, you, got the, you get the improved version at 11. At 9 o'clock, my slide came up goofy. I don't know why. Um, but as far as like evidence of our walk with Christ, your prayers don't have to be long to be genuine, correct? And here, look at what it says related to Nehemiah praying. So this is, he's acting in faith here, and the Lord prompts him to pray in the midst of it. And I'm saying, and it's not really me, I mean, the scripture illustrates our prayers don't have to be long to be genuine, but this is what it says in verse 4. It says, the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. So you have Nehemiah, he's pouring out his heart before the king. And the king could see that this is more than just a moment for Nehemiah to vent. You know, he's not just venting his feelings before the king. There's more to it than that. It was clear that Nehemiah felt burdened not to just think about or vent on what was troubling him, but to act on what had been troubling him. And so the king asks Nehemiah the kind of question that probably most people on the earth at that time would have loved for the king to ask them. Um, But basically, the king asks Nehemiah, um, what are you requesting? King's the one that has the ability to act in that, in that kind of moment and to supply what's needed. And he asked Nehemiah, what are you requesting? You know, this isn't just a thought. This isn't just theory you're getting at, right, Nehemiah? So what are you requesting? Keep in mind that at this point in history, Artaxerxes, who was the king that, that Nehemiah is speaking to, was not just a powerful king. He was the most powerful king on the earth. At his disposal were armies, money, uh, resources, and people that would be required by law to immediately obey his directives, whatever his directives happened to be. Nobody on earth at the time had as much at their disposal as Artaxerxes, and no one could command as much to take place in a moment as Artaxerxes could. So that's who Nehemiah is having this conversation with. And Nehemiah knew that for the work that needed to be done in Jerusalem to be accomplished, he would need the help and he would need the favor of the king. And we could see here that the king, or that the Lord's been working in the heart of the king to make him favorably disposed to Nehemiah and to make him favorably disposed to the mission that God had entrusted to Nehemiah's oversight. So as the king asks Nehemiah, what are you requesting? This is a big deal. This is a big moment because Nehemiah is already burdened for this to take place, and now the very opportunity um, for all that needs to come together and coalesce is right before him. And in that moment, the scripture reveals to us, Nehemiah is very much afraid. And what does he do? We're told here he prays. He quickly prays, right? Can you identify with that? He quickly prays. You know, it it tells us, it says, so I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king. So he doesn't make the king wait a real long time. The king asks a question and Nehemiah prays, but this doesn't give us the impression that Nehemiah is like, hmm, one second, I need to pray. Leaves for 45 minutes, comes back and says, now I will answer your question. This is one of those moments where it's a quick prayer. By, when you look at the context, you could tell he's just quickly praying. It's not formal. It's not flowery. It's not long. It's one of those prayers that kind of goes like this, Lord, help. And we've all experienced those moments. You ever hydroplane or slide on ice when you're driving your car? What is your prayer in that moment? Lord, help. And it usually sounds like this, right? Sounds just like that. 
And that's how we pray. Or how about this? Those of you that have young children, do you ever have that awkward moment where you have your kids with you and then you let go of their hand for a second, you think they're right there, and then all of a sudden you look down and they're not, and you're like, I don't see my kid. Where is my kid? Right? And what's your prayer in that moment? Lord, help. And if it dare take more than five seconds to get your eye on that kid, it feels like an hour. I mean, I can remember when our kids were little in particular, there being times where it was like probably less than a minute and your heart's pounding, and you feel sweat beat on your forehead, and immediately you're thinking, my kid is in the highway right now. That's where they are, right? Right now, they're in a highway. I don't know how they got there, but that's where they're at. And, uh, and all you have time to pray is, Lord, help, right? Lord, help. And that's the kind of prayer that I imagine that Nehemiah was praying in that moment. Very quickly, you know, he's, I prayed, you know, the the king says, what are you requesting? And it says, so I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king. So probably just as quickly as I read that, Nehemiah prayed. And I don't know his words exactly, but I, I have every reason to suspect he probably simply prayed, Lord, help. And he makes his request of the king. It's interesting because I think some people mistakenly believe that for a prayer to be effective that it needs to be accompanied by a display of your grasp of the English uh, language from the Shakespearean era, right? I have a friend, I'm going to say this really, really anonymously. I highly doubt that he listens to the recordings of my sermons. But just in case, he may or may not be able to figure this out. Um, He's an older man, uh, probably two generations older than me. And I always have gotten along extremely well with this man. I've known him for quite a long time now. And I've noticed that just in conversation, he speaks like a regular guy. You know, just common, everyday language that we all use. And if he's ever put in a context where he has to pray before a church gathering or pray in any kind of formal context where it has to be out loud, all of us, I mean, you could tell just from hearing this man speak normally, you could tell what region of New York he lives in. I know, just from hearing him speak, I could tell you where he's from. But when he's asked to pray in front of a group, all of a sudden, he becomes a master of old English. Every, I'm not kidding, every, every reference to you becomes the, and every verb ends with E-S-T. So if he says no, it becomes no-est. I'm like, no-est? You do not say no-est. Or if he says think, it becomes think-est. I'm like, you don't talk like that. But when he prays, he absolutely does talk like that. And I don't know where that got in, in his head that that's a must, that if you're leading a group of people out loud praying, somehow in his mind he got it in there, somewhere along the course of his life, maybe by example of somebody else praying, um, that he needs to be extremely formal and extremely um, like tied to King James English to a degree. And so that's how he prays. Now, I'm not saying his prayers aren't genuine, but I do know that in a public context, he feels pressure to pray a particular way. I don't think that pressure is coming from God. That's something that he's putting on himself because he thinks he needs to keep up with some level of a public appearance or public expectation. And then you look at this portion of scripture. And what do you discover about Nehemiah's prayer? It's very short. 
We're not even told what he says. We're just left to infer what he says, but it's very genuine. What does Christ say about that kind of praying? What advice does he give us related to prayer? Well, there's multiple scriptures where Christ references prayer. But let me show you one from Mark chapter 12. In Mark chapter 12, starting with verse 38, Jesus says this. It says, Jesus also taught, Beware of these teachers of religious law, for they like to parade around in flowing robes and receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces, and how they love the seats of honor in the synagogues and the head table uh, at banquets. Yet they shamelessly cheat widows out of their property and then pretend to be pious by making long prayers in public. Because of this, they will be more severely punished. They pretend to be pious by making long prayers in public. I've told you this story before, but I'll never never forget. I don't know the guy directly that this refers to, but a pastor friend of mine was telling me once at a pastor's gathering, and sometimes I get together with other pastors, and frequently there'll be like a prayer circle or something along those lines where we'll pray for each other's needs. And the one guy was recalling a time where an older pastor that he looked up to was at one of these prayer gatherings, and all the pastors kind of felt like they needed to impress one another with their theological uh, pepperings of like their... uh, of their prayers, and so one guy would pray, and the next guy was like, well, I can outpray that guy, and so like, then he would pray even longer and more flowerier, and it went through several guys, and finally it got to this one particular pastor, and he simply prayed, Lord, please save us from long and showy prayers. Amen. Tag. And he moved on to the next guy. And I love that story, because does our, do our prayers need to be long and flowery and showy, to be genuine, to be accepted before the throne of God. No, they just need to be real. They need to be genuine. They need to be sincere. The point is the Lord is not impressed by a show. There is no show I can put on or that you could put on that's somehow going to impress the Lord who can speak a universe into existence. Your prayers and my prayers do not have to be long and showy to be real, to be genuine. The Lord invites us to come into His presence confident that because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, we are welcomed before Him without pretense. And He invites us to approach Him. He invites us to appreciate Him. He invites us to confess to Him. He invites us to thank Him for what He's done. He invites us to make requests of Him. And it doesn't have to be complicated. And it doesn't have to be fancy. It just has to be genuine. And when you look at Nehemiah's prayer here, Nehemiah makes a genuine but quick request before the Lord, and his request was clearly in line with the Lord's will. And as we'll see, the Lord delights to say yes to requests that are in line with his purposes and plans. And in fact, what is the pattern of prayer that Jesus gives us? Not my will, but yours be done, right? When we pray before the Lord, the ultimate goal is that we pray by faith in accordance with the Lord's will in the name of Christ, who has given us confident access to the throne of God. And you see, Nehemiah, not showy. I don't even know if Artaxerxes even realized that Nehemiah had prayed in that moment. But in his heart, he comes before the Lord and he says, whatever he says, probably Lord help. And then we watch him make the request before the king and we watch what God does. There's something else that I want us to see related to our own lives and then a bigger picture kind of thing from this this, uh, same passage of Scripture, and that's this. 
your faithfulness can be used by God to accomplish great things. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, look again at verses 6 down to verse 8 as we finish this up today. Because we see Nehemiah doing what God has called him to do and being in a position that God has placed him in. And Nehemiah certainly develops here a reputation before the king for faithfulness. And we're going to see here as this plays out that Nehemiah's faithfulness has a long-term effect on God's people. And this is what it says. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him. So we kind of get the impression that the queen was uh, someone that Nehemiah was also acquainted with, that they were maybe in many respects almost like family to him. He says, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to, to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the provinces beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And then notice this line where it says, And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Now in a moment, I'm going to point our hearts, hopefully, or point our eyes, and the Lord will point our hearts, to something that I believe is extremely significant related to this passage, and it's easy to skip on a first reading. So I'll point us to it in just a moment. But one of the things that I think by way of example that we would benefit from noticing first is the character and the faithfulness and the reputation that the Lord creates in your life once you follow Him can be a very useful tool in His hands to accomplish His great purposes on this earth. I think uh, reputation is an important thing. And I think our reputation is forged in the minds of others, not just in what we say or what we claim to believe, but when people actually see us living uh, in, in compliance with the things that we say that we believe. So when people see us living out what we say are our core beliefs, I think our reputation gets forged in those kinds of moments. And when you look at Nehemiah's life, even just the brief glimpse we've been given of him so far, but we'll see this develop further throughout the, the book, but we could see that Nehemiah loved the Lord. Uh, we could see that he considered his service to the king to be a way that he was able to live out his faith in a public sphere. So by being faithful to the Lord in the public sphere, that meant being faithful in his service to the king, reliable to the king, and you can tell that the king valued Nehemiah and valued Nehemiah's service. The king had clearly come to appreciate Nehemiah. The king had clearly come uh, to trust Nehemiah, and it's clear that as he prepares to honor Nehemiah's request for help, his other concern is how soon can Nehemiah come back from doing this? And I kind of get the impression that the queen probably felt the same way. You know, she's referenced here. They probably looked at Nehemiah as like, this is one of the few people in this world that we feel like we can trust no matter what. So Nehemiah, obviously we're going to grant your request, but just assure us, like, how soon can you come back? You're not going to be gone forever, right? This is just a season, then you come back to us. That seems to be their major concern, right? And he honors Nehemiah's faithfulness, to himself, right? Faithfulness to the king. The king honors Nehemiah's faithfulness to him by granting his request. And he appreciates him so much that he hopes he's not going to be gone long. And when you have God using Nehemiah's faithfulness here and his reputation in the king's presence to accomplish what would be for the great benefit of God's people for all time. God always has the greater good in mind. 
And the greater good, when we take the entirety of Scripture as a whole, when you read the Scriptures from start to finish, from Genesis to Revelation, the greater good is that ultimately humanity experience redemption and salvation through faith in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. So let me ask us this, and it's not a trick question, I promise you, but it is something that I want you to think about as we look at this. In looking at this particular passage from Nehemiah chapter 2, how does this Scripture tie in to God's greater plan of redemption through faith in Jesus Christ. I think it's very easy to look at a portion of Scripture like this and to read it and to think that the big point is that this is a a chapter about the cupbearer to a king who makes a request, that request is granted, then he gets to build a wall. And then some people would look at that and say, all right, be like Nehemiah. Do good things and build good walls. And say that's the point of this passage. That is not the point of this passage. Yes, Nehemiah is certainly a good example. But the question is this, how does this tie in to to God's overall big plan for the redemption of humanity, the salvation of humanity? A portion of Scripture where a man asks a king for permission to build a wall. I would say this, and I believe this in my heart, that the only way to truly understand the Word of God is to ask yourself the question, how does this scripture point me to Jesus? Whether you're in the book of Nehemiah, whether you're in Ezra, whether you're in the Psalms, whether you're in Malachi, wherever you are in the scriptures, if you're not asking the question, how does this point me to Jesus, there's something you're missing that God wants you to pick up on that portion of scripture. But when you do ask that question, you begin to see things and make the tie-ins when you look at the totality of God's word And you begin to realize that God doesn't waste words. And in fact, Nehemiah chapter 2 is not just about getting permission to build a wall. It ties in directly to the mission of Jesus Christ. Artaxerxes, who is the king at this particular time, he grants Nehemiah the request and he issues a decree that the walls of Jerusalem should be rebuilt. And in the prophetic book of Daniel, which was also written in this general time period, there's an interesting reference to this decree, and I want to read it to you. This is what it says in Daniel 9, starting with verse 25, related to this very decree. It says, now listen and understand, seven sets of seven plus 62 sets of seven will pass from the time that the command is given to rebuild Jerusalem until a ruler the anointed one comes. Jerusalem will be rebuilt with streets and strong defenses, despite the perilous times. After this period of 62 sets of seven, the anointed one will be killed, appearing to have accomplished nothing. Now that scripture goes on to tell us even more related to prophetic events. But what's taking place here? You know, what was Daniel saying in Daniel chapter 9, and how does that relate to what is transpiring here in Nehemiah chapter 2, and how does this tie in to Christ's plan to save humanity? He was saying that this decree that Artaxerxes was issuing, that the walls of Jerusalem be rebuilt, was the, the starting point of a timetable that would prophetically predict when Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one would come to this earth, minister on this earth, and be killed, having appeared to accomplish nothing. He's saying this is God's marker 
to start the countdown. And in fact, what he says here is there's going to be a period of seven years, or excuse me, he says seven sets of seven, so that's 49 years, and then it says 62 sets of seven, and when you add those up, it comes up to 483 years. Now, you're ready to do some math? I promise you that this isn't goofy, and just for fun, if you have a pen, you should write this down, but you'd be able to find this, you know, elsewhere if you just do a little reading. I said to my kids, they were uh, all in the back row during the first service. They, they're not always fond of their math homework. And I said, are you happy that we're doing math in Sunday worship today? So here's a couple odds and ends. And I want you to look this up, okay? Don't take my word for any of this. You look this up yourself. We're told here that 483 years, so 69 groups of seven, you do the math, 483 years, after the issue of the, de- the decree to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, the anointed one, the Messiah, is going to be cut off and killed. At this time, the Babylonians and the Hebrews, they both kept a 360-day calendar. We use a 365 and a quarter day calendar. At this point, they used a 360-day calendar. So using a 360-day calendar... And you multiply that by 483 years, it comes to 173,880 days. 173,880 days. And here the prophet Daniel says, basically, 173,880 days from when the decree is issued, the anointed one is going to be killed. And when you do the math, the decree was issued in 445 B.C. And 173,880 days later takes us to 30 A.D. when Jesus Christ was crucified. It's a unique prophecy in that God doesn't always tell us specific dates. He tells us specific events, but He doesn't always tell us specific dates when things are going to happen. But hundreds of years before Christ's crucifixion, the Lord prophesied through Daniel, and we also see through the events here in the book of Nehemiah, when Jesus Christ was going to be crucified. And he did that as a tool that we could use as confirmation that this stuff isn't just made up. For hundreds of years, people had that prophecy, and we're told that the prophets of old longed to look into these things. And it wouldn't surprise me in the least to know that some of these guys had done the math and said, all right, 483 years, 173,880 days. There's something that's going to happen at this point. The anointed one, we're told, is going to be killed. And initially, it'll appear that he's failed to accomplish what his mission was. And it was communicated through Daniel And a portion of it was also confirmed here through Nehemiah. And when Artaxerxes is issuing this decree in 445 B.C., what he's doing is divinely, as God's directing the course of human history, starting the timetable that points us directly to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Isn't that fascinating? And I think so often when you look at a portion of Scripture like this, it could be so easy to just skim right through it. And miss that. But the truth is, to truly understand the Word of God, the big question we need to ask is, how does this point me to Jesus Christ? And the Scripture points us directly to Jesus. 
And it's clear when we look at the big picture here that the good hand of God is not only at work in Nehemiah's life and not only at work in your life and my life, but you see the good hand of God at work in human history ultimately directing us to the point where we have the option to believe in Jesus Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah who came to this earth and died in our place and then rose from the grave and shares His victory with all who believe. This is a fascinating portion of Scripture because it gives us an example of what it looks like to live by faith, but it also shows us that we can rely on what God has promised us to fulfill. And knowing that God is working all things together for the good, I think this Scripture challenges us to put our faith to use even in the midst of moments of fear. I think it challenges us to be people of genuine prayer in the midst of of moments where at times we're experiencing a level of confusion. I think it also challenges us to to use our reputations to testify to the genuine presence of Jesus Christ in our lives. And I look at portions of Scripture like this, and I find them very encouraging and very inspiring because you see that there are very human people that God makes use. He makes use of in ways that are beyond ways that they even realize they were being useful in God's overall plan. You think Nehemiah connected all those dots in that moment? No. But he did have the faith to be able to say the good hand of God was at work. So there are dots that you and I are not going to be able to connect right now in the moment. But there needs to be a prevailing thought throughout your life and my life, all throughout the course of our days, that ultimately God is bringing all human history to a Christ-centered crescendo. And He's working all things together for the good of those who love Him. And if you believe in Jesus Christ, you can be confident that in every season of your life, even the seasons where it doesn't feel like it, that the good hand of God absolutely is at work. Even if you're going through a season of prayer, uh, of fear or a season where you feel like you really need to ramp up your prayer life or a season of confusion where you don't know the outcome, the overall theme still remains. The good hand of God is at work. And I love how Nehemiah, at this point when he's testifying to these things, doesn't know how the book of Nehemiah concludes like we know. And he doesn't know all the details related to the other prophecies of Scripture. All he knows is that he's in a moment where the Lord says, Nehemiah, take the next step and trust me for the results. And the truth is, that's the same spot that we're in as well. We have exactly what the Lord has revealed to us, but there are plenty of things that we don't know yet. All we know is that the Lord says, you're right in a spot, just trust me and take the next step as I give you the unction to do so. And just be confident that my good hand is at work in the life of all who call on the name of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word, and thank you for the privilege of being able to look at a portion of Scripture like this with the added context of having access to prophetic portions of your word that that some of the believers that came before us in, in generations past did not yet have access to. And Lord, when we look at portions like this, it it does several things. It gives us confidence in you, confidence in your plan. I know for me, it also gives me confidence in the reliability of your word because you fulfilled to the day the exact things that you said that you were going to do. So Lord, that's fascinating to watch as that all plays out here. 
And uh, Lord, it's, it's beautiful that you allow us to see the big picture of what was taking place in these portions of Scripture that sometimes look like they're all about a moment, but really they're more about your plan of man, for mankind's salvation. So Lord, we're just grateful that we get to experience that and rejoice in that and realize that through faith in Jesus Christ, we are beneficiaries of the work that Christ came to do as Jesus came, suffered, bled, died, and rose from the grave. And Lord, maybe there were those at the time that looked at him and felt like he didn't accomplish a whole lot because he didn't establish himself as an earthly king. And now here we are a couple thousand years after his earthly ministry and we recognize exactly what has been accomplished. As millions and millions of people throughout the world right now and and throughout history from that time have called on the name of Jesus Christ and received the free gift of salvation. So Lord, we rejoice in these things and we thank you for the privilege of being able to look at them from the context of your word. Lord, I pray that in whatever season we're in right now, if we're in one of those seasons where we would love to see the big picture, but right now we just get to see the immediate picture, help us to trust you that the big picture is there. And we pray that by your grace that we would have the patience to wait until you allow us to see the big picture. We'll see it someday, maybe in heaven or maybe before, but at the same time, Lord, we know that your hand is at work. You tell us that time and time again, and you illustrate that in portions of Scripture like what we see you doing in Nehemiah's life in this passage. So, Lord, if we're only seeing a little bit, that's fine. We just pray that we would be prompted by you to respond in faith when you encourage us to make whatever the next step may be. And maybe we won't see ten steps down the road, but if we obey in the next one, then eventually we'll see ten steps and twenty steps and whatever it may be. So, Lord, we thank you that we can have confidence in you that you won't lead us astray, but rather you lead us directly toward the direction that you want our lives to take. And that's a Christ-centered direction. And we pray that by your grace, that Jesus Christ would be the center of our lives. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for your love for us. And we thank you for the privilege to start off our week meditating on your word. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Informal Bible Study. We're glad that you were able to be with us today. We hope that you enjoyed that message from Nehemiah chapter 2 and that by God's grace it's something that he uses to edify you and help you in your walk with Christ. Again, we invite you to visit us on our website, which is pastor.us. And if you'd like to become a supporter of this ministry, there's a link to do so there. There's also a bunch of resources that you might want to check out that are helpful in various areas of spiritual growth and also some marriage helps that we also make available there. And one other way that you could support this ministry, next time you're on iTunes, take a moment to leave us a rating or a review. Those are super helpful. And in addition to being helpful to us as we spread word of this uh, podcast, They're also encouraging to me. So I enjoy reading those things. Thanks again to those of you who have been willing to leave some so far. It's very edifying. So that's all for us today. Hope you have a great day and a wonderful week, and we look forward to catching up with you again next week as we continue our study of 2 Corinthians by looking at chapter 8. Have a great day.
Have you ever considered yourself a messenger? I mean, you are called by God, and aren't we all praying the big prayer, here I am, Lord, send me. So if we put two and two together, you've got a message to deliver, my friend. Whether it's mics like this, bookshelves around the world, stages to take, art to make, or businesses to build, it's time we start testifying truth, unashamedly, creatively, and in love. My name is Tamara Andress, the host of the Messenger Movement Podcast, which is designed to catalyze Christians to speak, write, build, and testify. I use my mic like a machete, so if you don't like to get your toes stepped on or pushed off cliffs to finally jump on in with Jesus, I may be too much for you. But if you're ready to turn your message into a movement and want to run with other messengers doing the thing at scale globally, search and follow the Messenger Movement Podcast on your favorite podcast platform or lifeaudio.com today.